You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a British politician and the president of the Liberal Democrats Party. Holding a PhD in history, he was formerly the leader of the Liberal Democrats in the British Parliament. His latest book is titled Polling Unpacked, The History, Uses, and Abuses of Political Opinion Polls. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Mark Peck. Thank you so much for joining us. Lovely to be with you. Well, firstly, um, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background. Yeah, so I am president of the Liberal Democrats, which is a sort of centre-left political party. I guess the Democrats in the US are probably the party that's sort of closest to us in terms of politics. Um, and due to, uh, unfortunately, the defeat of our uh, previous leader at the last general election, I was briefly uh, interim co-leader of my party. So for British political geeks, I am the perfect trivia quiz question answer if you ever want to impress people with your knowledge of British political party leaders. Okay. Um, so your your latest book is titled um, Polling Unpacked, the, the History, Uses and Abuses of Political Opinion Polls. Um, so I wanted to start by talking about this book, uh, specifically where you start, which is the first political polls. Um, so Dr. Peck, can you tell us a bit about these earliest polls in the antebellum United States and how and why they came about? Yeah, the first sort of information gathering that we would really apply the label opinion polling to dates from the 1824 US presidential election, which was a significant election in a couple of respects. One was that the then sort of dominant political party that really dominated US politics was fracturing and splintering with internal disagreements. And in fact, four different candidates from that one party ran in the election. So it was a proper contest. There was real doubt as to who was going to win. And then the second element that makes 1824 so interesting is that it's really the start of the spread of democracy in US presidential elections in the sense of letting members of the public, white men predominantly, given given we are talking the early 19th century, but nonetheless, letting members of the public in each state vote for who their state representatives would be in the Electoral College, as opposed to having other people pick who the Electoral College representatives would be. So it's a very imperfect form of democracy, but quite an important step forward. And because of this greater importance of the public and this greater doubt about the election result, people were just interested in thinking, well, who's going to win? And therefore, things like uh, militia meetings, where all of the sort of adult males in an area would be mustered to turn up for their militia duty, those were used for straw polling, asking people to say, which are the presidential candidates are you going to, are you going to support? And so those those mass sort of public gatherings of people were the first sort of systematic gathering of information about who is somebody going to vote for. And obviously what opinion pollsters do now is much more sophisticated and advanced, but it is at essence essentially the same thing. Get a whole load of people together, ask them their views, and if you've got a decent number of people together and they are properly representative of the overall population you're trying to measure, then asking them their views can give you a really good insight and pretty accurate insight even when you do it well to what everyone overall thinks. 
Um, yeah, so next I wanted to ask you to tell us a bit about the, the history of polling um, through the 19th and 20th centuries, the role it's played in, and how it's proliferated from, um, you know, the in the early United States, um, like you said, to um, where it is today, a multi-billion dollar industry. Yeah, so from those original sort of fairly crude straw polls at militia meetings and the like in the early 19th century, polling became a bit more sophisticated through the rest of the 19th century and the early 20th century. But the really big breakthrough and the birth of what we would now consider modern scientific polling happened in the 1930s, again, in in the US, where due to developments in understanding of statistics and in particular sampling, and especially this point that to do an accurate poll, how many people you talk to matters rather less than the quality how representative the group of people you talk to is. So an example I always like giving is if you want to know what people think uh, about different sports teams in a country, a national sample of a 1,000 people will give you a much more representative set of answers than if you simply stand outside one particular team's sports ground and ask only the people turning up on match day what they think of of all the different teams across the country. So that even if you were to ask far more people because they would be unrepresentative because it would you know, be dominated by fans of just one team, that would be less good than a more representative sample. So that was the sort of understanding that people had begun to get in the early 20th century. And so there was then a really uh, dramatic and historic sort of denouement between these two methodologies in the 1936 US presidential election where the Literary Digest had really championed the development of that idea of asking as many different people as possible. So they had millions of people taking part in their presidential election surveys. And three different modern scientific pollsters, of whom George Gallup was the best self-publicist and therefore the most famous, instead concentrated on much smaller samples, but having high-quality, properly represented samples. The three modern pollsters said that the Democrats were going to win, the Literary Digest said the Republicans were going to win, when the results came in, it was indeed a landslide win for the Democrats, and that was therefore the dramatic making of the reputation of modern polling. Okay, um, so next I wanted to talk a bit about the specifics of how polls work. Mm. Um, so what's what's a good sample size for a political poll, and how do pollsters ensure that they get an accurate representation of the voting population? Yeah. Um, so for a national poll, a national survey, whether it's in the US or Britain or France or Brazil, say, Anywhere in the sort of one one to two thousand range is is perfectly sort of decent. And in a way, this is the slightly surprising counterintuitive thing at the heart of polling, which is that the US and the UK have very different population sizes. The US, broadly speaking, six times the size of the UK. And yet in both cases, similar sample sizes for national polls are perfectly adequate. And the best analogy I've come across to sort of explain this is one that George Gallup, one of that, one of those pioneering modern scientific pollsters I mentioned, came up with, where he said, imagine you have a bowl of soup and you want to work out what the soup tastes like. You maybe you know, stick your spoon in the bowl of soup. You might swirl it around to make sure it's all sort of neatly, neatly mixed up, as it were. And then you'll, you know, take a spoonful of the soup. And you'll be quite happy on the idea of having taken one spoonful of soup that you know what all of the soup in the bowl tastes like. And if the bowl was not a bowl, but a vat, a huge vat of soup, you'd still be happy with the idea that one spoonful would tell you what the vat overall tastes like. And so polling sampling is like that. There's all sorts of math, which actually isn't that complicated, get taught. The sort of math actually that get taught in high school that explains why it's the sample size rather than its size relative to the overall population uh, that matters so much. So one to 2,000 typically will be sufficient for a national poll. 
But what's much more important than the sample size is the quality. And if you look at good and bad polls, good and bad pollsters, good and bad elections for pollsters, the thing that almost always is at the heart of problems where some polls or pollsters go wrong is to do with questions around the quality of the sample that they had and some other questions sometimes like, you know, did they word their questions well and so on. But it's quality of the sample that matters rather than quantity of the sample. And so when, you know, polls have bad election misses, it's almost never that they didn't talk to enough people. Okay, so then how do pollsters ensure that they're getting an accurate representation? I mean, there are so many different demographic um, mm. aspects to take into account, um, you know, especially with in countries like the United States and the UK, which are, um, you know, extremely um, diverse, um, you know, have different um, sort of minority populations that, that tend to vote um, quite differently. Um, so how, how do pollsters then, then ensure that, you know, every, every age group, um, I, I mean, it must be a logistical nightmare to make sure that every group is equally balanced or there are tricks that they can use statistically to, to even that out. Yeah. And, and this is why, in a way, polling is as much an art as a science, because you, what criteria do you use to work out to say, you know, is my poll representative or not? I mean, it's fairly obvious that you probably want your sample to have the right balance between men and women, between people who live, say, in the north of the country and the south of the country, as the overall electorate. You know, there are some characteristics which are fairly straightforward. There are also ones which are obviously irrelevant, like it doesn't matter for a political national voting intention poll if you have too many left-handed people, let's say, in your sample. But then there are lots of other criteria where it's not obvious. It's not obvious that it should be included, like, say, male-female. It's not obvious that it's safe to ignore, like, left or right-handed. And a good example of this is level of education. This is something that pollsters, until relatively recently, have tended not to particularly wait by. So they've not particularly you know, said, well, OK, how many people have we got with a college degree? Does that match up with the overall population? But one thing we've seen in recent elections, in particularly the US, is that actually political preferences are particularly varying these days, depending on how much formal education somebody has. And so waiting by those issues becomes really important. So what what pollsters do is they come up with a series of criteria which they think it's important their sample to be accurate on. Might be gender, might be geography, might be levels of education, might be path, voting patterns, and so on. And then they try and get as close as they can to a random sample of people, but they know that it's not you know, getting pure randomness is like trying to draw an exact circle. You can never quite get there. But you know, you, you, you get your sample of people, you find out for each of them how, you know, which of those different categories they fall into. And then if it turns out you've ended up sampling, say, more men than women, but actually the population overall is slightly more female than male, when it comes to crunching the numbers, what pollsters do is weight the results. So those answers from women will be given a slightly bigger weighting and hence overall balance the results to match up with the overall criteria in the wider population. And this is one of the areas where when polls go wrong, quite often this is one of the areas where uh, the explanation rests because it turns out that there's a criteria that pollsters weren't waiting for, weren't adjusting for, that turned out to be important and therefore their samples were lopsided. Or most famously in Britain in the 1992 election, which was one of the worst ever for pollsters, one of the things that got, you know, that undermined pollsters in that election was they were trying to wait by the right sort of demographic characteristic, but the data they were using from the, the British census was a decade old. And so they were waiting to the wrong numbers. They were trying to wait on the right characteristic, but waiting to the wrong number. And that made their poll wrong. And so this is also why polling is an ever-evolving field. It's not like there's one methodology that's perfect for all time, because which are the right characteristics 
to wait for, which get, you know, which matter in terms of political choice and which are irrelevant. That's not something that's fixed for all time. That's something that changes as political parties and issues of current concern come and go. So there'll be plenty to keep pollsters on their toes for a long time yet. Yeah, so that that brings me um, squarely to my next question about reliability. Um, mm. Just just as an example, if I go into real clear politics right now and, and take a look at the latest polls on, say, President Biden's approval rating, mm. there's a wide range between the results. Uh, a Quinnipiac poll and a Rasmussen poll taken just days apart placed the president's approval rating at 33 percent and 44 percent, respectively. So how, how does one tell the good from the bad or, or separate the more reliable polls from the rest, less reliable ones? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things in particular that rest behind the, the big variations on things like presidential approval rating figures in the US. One is that approval rating figures in all sorts of different countries vary quite significantly depending on the exact wording of the question. So even a variation between saying, are you satisfied or dissatisfied with President Biden's record as president? Or do you approve or disapprove of President Biden's record as president, even relatively subtle changes in wording like that, can produce quite big uh, variations in answers. So with that, those sort of politician approval rating type figures, it's really important to be comparing like with like, so exactly the same question wording with exactly the same question wording, because otherwise, you know, you get the these mirages of apparent moves in opinion that are just because different question wording used at different times. And it's, I mean, in a way, it's a bit, little bit of a mystery as to why on politician approval ratings, the subtlety of the wording of the question produces such big variations in the result. But it's a consistent pattern. So we know it, it's there and it's something to look out for. Um, a second reason for sort of variation uh, in the numbers is that different pollsters tend to have different methodologies and different house effects. Um, so you see this, for example, there are some pollsters who rely completely on online polling other pollsters who rely much more heavily, say, on telephone polling. Very few pollsters these days do face-to-face -face surveying in the sort of old-fashioned old way, but there's a little bit of that that happens still as, as, as well on occasion. And so if you've got different methodologies, you've got different approaches, you've got maybe different criteria you're waiting for, it's quite common to see one pollster, therefore, significant, you know, consistently having a fit figures that are slightly more beneficial or more positive for the politicians or the voting intentions of one party than another. And in the end, the only way of really putting that to the test, obviously, is when an ele actual election comes around and comparing their voting intention figures against the actual election results. And on that score, um, US pollsters do seem to have a greater variety than, say, pollsters in Britain. I do think there's something about the, the business model that underpins polling in the US that um, means there's less business pressure on produce really good accurate results in the way there is in the UK. And I think that is in because in the UK, political polling is very much a loss leader. And firms that do political polling essentially do it for the publicity value and how it enhances uh, their brand, it enhances their reputation, it gets their firm better known, and therefore they hopefully win you know, lots of other business outside political polling, which is where they then make their money from. And so there's a real emphasis on trying to be as accurate as possible, because that process only works if your poll ends up being close to the actual election result when polling day comes around. In the US, there are many more pollsters who basically make their money out of political polling. And so they don't have that extra financial pressure on to be accurate. And instead, the risk is they end up, for example, predominantly having Republican clients or predominantly Democrat clients. And you end up with methodology that, oh, so happens to 
particularly favour Republicans or particularly favour Democrats. So overall, um, if you look at the international comparisons, US polling tends to be towards the ina- most inaccurate end of the scale, actually. And it, it, um, I know US politicians probably don't like being reminded of this, but in general, the, uh, it, it's in other countries that you get more accurate polling. I should say, in fairness to US pollsters, that one of the factors that tends to go with accuracy of polling is turnout in elections. The lower the turnout is, the the more inaccurate on average polls tend to be because that adds in an extra complicating factor that pollsters have to try to adjust for. And yeah, a lot of elections in the US are relatively low turnout. So it is perhaps in fact the US pollsters also harder to do really high quality accurate polling. Yeah. Um, I, and I, I was going to ask about that, that business model um, mm. in terms of how how it plays into misleading polls. You you actually have a chapter in the book titled Even Good Polls Mislead. Mm. Um, so can, can you walk us what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I guess the best example of this is when you ask a, a polling question about a policy issue where you boil it down to one simple question and it's a topic that people don't spend a lot of time thinking about. And so what you get is an initial sort of gut reaction that may show huge support for a particular point of view or huge opposition to a particular point of view, but that actually that's quite fragile or brittle and therefore when really put to the test, uh, in, say, an election campaign, it can turn out public opinion is very different. And there was a famous example of this in Britain in the 2017 general election, where the then Conservative government had a policy on social care funding. They're looking after people who sort of need help with their sort of day-to-day lives because of long-term health uh, issues. And it acquired the nickname the dementia tax. And the very fact that it acquired that nickname can give you a clue as to how it played out with public opinion. But the Conservatives haven't been completely stupid and unveiled a big policy without testing it, you know, or thinking about it, public reaction to it at all. They'd done some polling on it and the polling had come out absolutely fine. And this was an OK policy to put forward. But when it then got the rigours of political debate and people putting the counter arguments as to why this was a really bad and unfair policy, it fell apart. And there was a, a, a famous press conference at which, you know, the prime minister, then prime minister did a U-turn, but claimed that she hadn't done a U-turn. And that went down really badly. And it all spiraled, spiraled disastrously. And yeah, the, the government ended up losing its overall majority at the, at the general election a few weeks later. So, it, But it wasn't that that original Tory polling was sort of wrong. It was just very limited in what it could tell you, that if you give somebody a short factual explanation about a complicated issue that they've not thought about very much, the answer that you get isn't necessarily the answer they're still going to have after several weeks of debate over the issue. Another example of how sort of, you know, even really good, well-done polls can go wrong is that people sometimes answer polling questions um, in a desire to express support for a particular party, a particular side in an issue, even if that isn't necessarily actually, when push comes to shove, really their view, because they know they know that the polling results are going to get reported you know, by the media. And so they want their side to come out as well as possible. And so there's an, a tendency, therefore, to overeg what your own views are, to have a sense of loyalty to your side, trumping, therefore, exact factual accuracy in terms of what you say in answers to questions. And then just to give you a third example of why you know even good polling can sort of mislead, is there's always going to be a bit of bouncing around in the numbers because you're taking a sample each time even if it's a really good representative sample it's a bit like tossing a coin we know that if we toss a coin 10 times on average we'll get five heads on average we'll get five tails but actually toss a coin 10 times and you don't get five of each every time 
you might get six of one, four of the other. You might get occasionally even seven of one, three of the other. There is a bit, and in the long term, the average is out at five each, but there's a bit of bouncing around. And so you can get a poll that's a little bit high on one side of the question one time, and maybe the next time that question's asked with a bit of bad luck, it's a little bit low on the other side, and that can produce all sorts of phantom uh, mirages. So one thing I I do in the book is I give an example of apparently some political polling results and the trends and the conclusions you'd be happy you know, to draw from them about this party was doing well in this time and then badly in this time and then i reveal uh, to the reader that actually all, all of the numbers were generated based on exactly the same level of support uh, consistently but just some random variation which you would expect from sampling and just illustrates how you create this mirage of trends that aren't really there Okay. Um, yeah. So next, I wanted to sort of flip this around and ask about the impact that polling has on voter participation and decisions. Um, so among the the most famous recent examples of this is perhaps the the 2016 presidential election in the U.S., where the majority of polls um, predicted Hillary Clinton as the winner. Um, many people have speculated that this um, comfortable lead in the polls may have actually reduced voter turnout amongst her supporters, who believed that she, she was surely going to win and, and thus didn't didn't um, turn up. So, I mean, just intuitively, it's it's not hard to imagine a scenario in which, uh, say, a potential Clinton supporter just doesn't bother to vote because um, every day they see or hear about another poll on social media projecting a huge Clinton landslide victory. Um, so to what extent would you give credence to the notion that political polls actually influence the results of an election? Yeah. I, I mean, just before getting into that, I guess it's worth a slight digression, which is that the national polls in 2016 in the U.S. presidential election were pretty accurate. Now, they said that Clinton would win the national vote share by a good handful of percentage points, and indeed she did. And so I think in some ways, the problem with the polls in 2016 was that people relied too much on the assumption that whoever wins the national vote share is going to win the Electoral College and be president. And that's something that prior to 2016, there, there was the outlier example of 2000 of Al Gore just winning the national vote share, but just losing the Electoral College. But prior to that, it had not happened for, you know, way until way, way back in US political history. And so it was an understandable mistake to make because the 2000 election was a weird outlier in all sorts of you know, exceptional ways. Um, but in a way, the mistake that I think a lot of people made was to assume that, oh, if they're ahead in the national voting attention polls, they're going to win. And that it was it wasn't that the polls were wrong. It was that assumption was wrong. Obviously, there were some individual state polls uh, in the Midwest in particular that were quite badly off. And, but when you delve into the detail and the evidence about, well, okay, do people change their votes in reaction to what they see in the polls? Is there's a couple of different possible factors. One is, as you say, if a party looks like it's going to win, people may be less likely to vote for it. They may think, oh, I don't need to bother to vote, or I can happily go to vote for someone else safely and still, you know, know that this party's going to win. But the flip side is that there's another effect that might happen, which is the bandwagon effect of thinking, oh, that party's going to win, or they've got a chance of winning, so I'm definitely going to vote for them, and I want to be on the winning side, and I don't want to waste my vote on somebody who's not got a chance of winning. And actually, when you look at the evidence overall, that it, it doesn't seem like um, knowing, having good data available as to what the levels of public support is for different candidates or parties, that doesn't seem to vary how people vote very much, except in a couple of points specific scenarios, particularly around electoral systems where there is a real incentive for tactical voting. So in the UK in particular, um, this could be quite a big, you know, big factor in some individual constituencies where you might have a party that you might think, well, if they got 
no chance of really winning. I'll vote for someone else. I'll pick between the two who have got a chance of winning. But if they have got a chance of winning, well, I'll stick with them. So where there are those tactical voting opportunities or where in, in some countries you've got electoral systems with, for example, list PR elements where you have to achieve at least a certain minimum percentage of the vote in, in the list part of your PR system in order to get any seats. You might have to get, you know, you get 4.9%, you get zero seats. 5%, you're in the game and you get a proportional share of, of, of the seats. Um, but again, if parties are very close to the threshold and that in, in the polls that are published, that that may influence things. So there are some scenarios, but they seem to be fairly limited. And also, I think fundamentally, if the public, you know, if a voter in part wants to know what the overall state of play is in terms of levels of popularity of different candidates or parties as part of deciding how to vote, well, that's their right. That's their freedom to. And it's better to have good quality information available to them on to make the basis of those decisions. If if you don't want, you know, those sorts of tactical considerations to be in the minds of voters at all, the answer is to pick a voting system, which means those factors don't count at all. Although even then you'd be hard pressed to, uh, to completely design out some of the bandwagon effects and so on. But fundamentally, you know, the point about a democracy is voters can choose what criteria the criteria are that they're going to uh, evaluate candidates and parties and hence their voting choice by. And if one of them is you know, what's the different levels of support for people? Better if they have good quality than low quality information for that. Yeah. Um, so lastly, I wanted to ask you about mm. regulating polling at the mm. legislative level. So you talk about how there were attempts by politicians mm. to, to actually ban polling in the 20th century. Mm. And as the influence of polls ha- has grown, they seem to have become a central part of, of political life. Um, mm. So given the massive influence that, that polls have, um, do you think there's any place for regulation on a legislative level? And if so, what, what form do you think that regulation should take? Yeah, I mean, the polls are quite widely regulated around the world and the most common bit of regulation is a ban on polls in the last few days or hours of an election and the logic for that often is that okay you know maybe there will be a poll every now and again that comes out that's way off and that's an inevitable part of the sort of randomness at the heart of polling that occasionally a poll will be wrong and if there's a poll wrong and then you wait a bit and there are other polls come out and you realize that poll was wrong well that's fine no harm done but if the poll that's wrong happens to be the last one that comes out just before people vote, then the damage to that that wayward road poll can cause is something that you can't undo in subsequent polling. Um, so there's definitely a good, respectable argument for saying, you know, let's make sure we don't have the risk of a road poll right at the last moment, skewing the public's perceptions unreasonably. And I think there's also a bit of, again, it's very common to have restrictions on publishing ex- exit polling uh, data whilst the polls are still open. So again, this idea you don't want to know, uh, tell people about the votes that have already been cast and therefore look, it's clear already who's going to be the winner in the risk of therefore putting people off taking part in the democratic exercise in the first place. And um, so I think there's some, you know, there's some good, good, reasonable regulation around that. But then there's also often regulation that is uh, motivated by a wider distrust of polling, which I think is misplaced because overall the accuracy of polling when you look at the systematic studies across different elections is pretty good and crucially vastly better than you know than alternatives like listening to pundits on uh, on cable news and the like so yeah polling is a better source of information but there are some people who just don't like it and therefore would rather not have it and also I think there can sometimes be a very almost sort of punctilious paternalistic attitude of well you know voters or politicians shouldn't pay attention to what the polls say as if somehow that 
that's the wrong thing to do in a democracy. You should have, you know, you should ignore what public opinion is. And again, I think that just fundamentally goes against the grain of public opinion. But I think what is um, where there definitely is scope for more, whether it's industry self-regulation or, or you know, pushed along by legislatures passing laws, is I think quite often rules around transparency of polling are not as good as they should be. Um, and so it's definitely a good thing if when, say, a poll is covered in the media, if the full details of that poll are readily accessible, because that's a really important part of both understanding what the poll really says and a safeguard against low quality polling or misreporting of polling. If you know the full details are going to be published, it keeps the pollster, the journalist and their editor on their toes. And um, in Britain, we have uh, some quite good industry self-regulation rules, although it can be a little slow for the full data to appear. Um, at the other end of the spectrum in Australia, for example, until very recently, there's been massive secrecy around around detail of polling. And I think after in the last one Australian election, pollsters performed quite poorly. And that does seem to have given the industry a bit of a kick to start improving its transparency levels. The US, I think, sort of falls a bit between the two that a lot of the pollsters are very good and diligent and there's decent transparency levels. But there's a definite sort of substratum of of US polling, which is not nearly as transparent and upfront about who's been asked what wording was asked where is the full data to look at and so on as they should be and um, so perhaps perhaps one you know if if the u.s in polling industry doesn't get its own act together um it may be useful to give them a bit of a bit of a a, a push with some formal sort of legalistic measures at some point and indeed it's in the u.s that there was the very first attempt um to sort of regulate political polling ironically way back in that, at the time of that 1936 US presidential election, I mentioned that the, the sort of run up to that election uh, in 1935 saw um, Walter Pierce, Walter M. Pierce from Oregon, congressman from Oregon, try to introduce legislation to ban polling. So at the very birth, right from the very birth of modern scientific polling, we have had politicians trying to ban polling. But indeed, as that 1936 US election showed, it was the pollsters who were there who were much better and more accurate at predicting what was going to happen than others. So there's a real cost for restricting the flow of such information. All right. Um, well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Peck. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Lovely talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.